This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right, guys, listen, welcome to the Full Blast Podcast. Before we get into it with my friend, Brian House, I just want to talk to you about our sponsor, Axe Wax. Thank you, Axe Wax. Axe Wax is back on with us, and I couldn't be happier. Axe Wax is a small company out in Oregon, and they make all-natural food-safe wax for your axe or your hammer or your knives or whatever. And I know what you're saying. You're saying, Jeff, who the hell needs food-safe wax for your axe? Well, I'm a culinary knife maker, and I'm psyched to be able to use uh, food-safe wax on my handles. I actually just finished a knife with a uh, forced patina I used uh, over the weekend. I didn't want it to get rusty. So I threw some axe wax on the blade. It's great, and it smells good. No petroleum byproducts. It's terrific. So go over to axewax.us, put in promo code FULLBLAST10, get yourself 10% off, buy a couple pucks. You know, and that, please. So thank you, Axe Wax. Go follow them on Instagram, Axe underscore Wax. And let's get on with this. My guest today is my friend, Brian House. Brian House is a podcast called the Work For It Podcast on the Bakery Network. He has um, a grinder company. He's the, he's the builder and designer of the revolution, Mark IV. He's also a fucking good dude. He runs a great podcast with Ben Butler on the Makery Network called Work For It, I just said. And I'm glad that you're here. How are you? Man, I'm doing great, Jeff. How are you doing? Fine. It's cold. It's still snowing a little bit. We've had it with the with the snow, but, you know. Yeah. What can you do? I feel the first sign of spring happened this morning. I take the dogs out around 5, and one of the dogs bark. They don't usually bark early in the morning. We smell the warning toot of a skunk. And I mm. think that that means spring is coming because they're they're waking up or so I don't know if they hibernated or around that, wandering but, around stinking. Well they were no out. they were in their little hutch but they were just like you know they sent out these they send out these little warning toots and that and then it makes me think that spring is coming. Right on. Yeah. Everything's starting to thaw out up there I hope soon. You know, we don't get that down here in Florida. We just have two seasons which is hot and less hot. There's not a, anything <laughs> other than that, but uh, it's been beautiful here, and I feel a little bit guilty about it sometimes. You know, like I'll share something, and uh, people, are, you know, I have a lot of friends in Texas right now dealing with the the uh, the mess that is, <sighs> you know, severe weather in Texas, and uh, in fact, a lot of our parts are made in Texas. So um, there's a little bit of, uh, you know, it's like. I grew up in Illinois, right? I grew up yeah. just outside of Chicago. So I spent 26 years of my life in snow and ice. Brutal so I know what it snow. feels like bad. Yeah. The Midwest is, there's something different about the Midwest version of winter, which is like gray for eight months out of the year. And it's right. like ice and snow and it's terrible. And then, um, and then, you know, about 15 years ago, I, I just picked up and left. I had lost my job up there. I was working for Fox TV affiliate. And then um, I ended up kind of coming down here for like trip, like vacation, and um, never left. So it was, uh, I, I don't care to ever really see all that snow and ice ever again. I just don't want, to, I have no interest in it. Unless my I'm skiing in or snowboarding. My in laws are in Madison, Wisconsin, and it's like mm. beyond brutal. And I, yeah. I just, it's like, it just doesn't interest me at all. Completely. I love Madison. Can I just say that's one of my favorite cities in the U.S.? 
Uh, I lived about an hour south of there, and uh, that would be like our our spot to go. Um, in fact, I was going to mention it to Hillary and ask her if she'd ever been to um, Devil's Lake State Park. I don't, I'm sure she talked about that place. Um, just a beautiful place to go. And uh, I used to rock climb and camp, and it's huh. just an absolute gorgeous spot in the world. Plus, Madison, man, if you want to, you want to have fun. You, you can't not not have fun in Madison, Wisconsin. There's always something fun going on. Yeah, great. Well, I we had a good uh, Madison's a good great place. It's a, it's a it's an interesting it's an interesting uh, city. I, I like mm. I like Wisconsin, but you know when we go there, we're going to talk about Wisconsin this whole time I mean, for God's <laughs> sakes. So a lot of a, listeners in Wisconsin though. There's people up there, man, chilling. They're, well, God bless out. them. I tell you what, the people from Wisconsin should be like consultants to the people in Texas because. Texas was not prepared for this weather. And it makes me feel, I was talking to Ben Snoor uh, uh, a couple days ago. And um, the worst part about all this, what's going on in Texas is it, it, I mean, of course, the fact that they're out of power is terrible. And it, the fact that, you know, everyone's freezing, they got no water, it's terrible. But it's the idea that they, the, their pipes are freezing and then they don't yeah. realize it until shit starts to thaw. And then right. what do you do? Because I was talking yeah. about it in our house. We were talking about because our house gets cold. My shop gets cold. Actually, my shop is uh, pipes have burst, you know, a couple years ago until I, you know, set the set the temperature of forty degrees when I'm not here. You got like all these people living in Texas and their pipes are in the walls. How the hell are they going to know where the pipes burst? Yeah, well, when the water starts coming through, you know, and a lot of those a lot of those houses, the pipes are are ran through their attics because you know, hey, it's a southern climate. Uh, they're not used to that kind of cold. Uh, a lot of lessons were probably learned. Like, you know, hey, if, 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 you're, if you don't have power in your house, you know, drain your, your plumbing system. Turn off the main and then just run all the water out of it. Get it, get it cleared out. And that How would you know? I, wouldn't, I never even knew. I would never even know that. You wouldn't think it until you've ever been through it. But then it makes sense, right? Because water expands when it freezes. Mm. If, you know, if, you, if you release the pressure from the plumbing, you know, there's, there's spots for that. Ice or the make, trickle, right? You know, yeah. Or you do the little let trickle. It, let, you could do a trickle if you have utility. And see, what's happening to a lot of my friends, I guy, man, he was posting pictures of him burning his furniture on Facebook. And he was saying, you know, so cold, we've called, we can't get our power back on. They're burning books. They're doing all kinds of stuff to stay warm. And now this is a guy that I went to high school with, by the way. So he's used to cold. I mean, it's not, it's not that. It's just that, you know, he's got a little daughter and, you know, all this. Right. Stuff. Nobody wants to go through this. Uh, hopefully they never have to. Again, you know, this is like a freak storm, like a hundred year storm, whatever. But goodness, man, um, I, I, I live through lots of hurricanes down here, so I know what it's like. But, you know, cold kills people. Heat very right. rarely does. You know, right. when you're in Florida, you get a hurricane. Yeah, it sucks for a bit. You're hotter. Um, yeah, dangerous stuff, man. So my heart goes out to everybody out in Texas. And Ugh. I said this on the work for it podcast too, is that if, you know, if anybody needs anything, give us a shout, like hit us up, you know, and send us a message, uh, DM us or whatever. We'll, you know, we've, it's interesting to be a part of a network like the makery network, right? You've got connections all over the place now. So, you, and don't be afraid to use them. So, you know, I, I'll, I'll reach out to people and go, who do I know in Texas that has this, this, and this? Huh. And it's close to this zip code. And, and usually somebody, you know, will say like, hey, man, I can help. And uh, being a part of this community, that's the 
it's the best thing ever, right? I mean, have you experienced that, Jeff? Like, you know, people reaching out and helping and, and when in times of need? I've had a couple of interesting uh, interactions with people. So, I, you know, it's not something you I don't talk about. It's not, t- it's not something I talk about because I don't want to, you know, it's going to sound like a humble brag or something. But, like, I've yeah. had some people reach out to me in, in, in a bad state. And yeah. I've said, I've given them my phone number and I've, I said, give me a call. And yeah. we've talked. And I've talked to some people who were really, I didn't expect it. And, I, and it was like, it was very, uh, it was humbling. And I, for some reason, I felt a degree of responsibility for these people. And I appreciate that they, you know, I appreciate that they're listening and it, this means something to them. I'm not, I'm not, I, it was, there was a few instances that were very, very uh, touching and humbling. And with that said, I appreciate the fuck out of them. Um, that doesn't mean sneak into my DMs and say, you're sad, let's talk. But at the same time, <laughs> but at the same time, we've have had some, you know, meaningful conversations with people who identify with the stuff that we're doing you know and one of the in regards that, to that uh last episode things, with go ahead, go ahead. i was just gonna I say would, the last episode of uh, uh full blast with mareko he was so unguarded and just a little bit of backstory i've been wanting to talk to mareko for a long time and i told him because you know I, you know we've been talking for three years and stuff like that but i wanted to make sure that he was going to be uh, you know he was going to want to say what he wanted to say i wanted to give him some space he was going some th- through things especially when he moved and you know i wanted to make sure that he was in a place that he wanted to be and i wanted to also make sure that this wasn't going to be like knife talk without craig and i and i gave him a lot of space and he was just you know it was the time was right and he was unbelievable and he was so relatable and he was so it was he he and i talked a little bit afterwards and he was just surprised at how many people reached out to him to say you know i really appreciate you saying that i'm in the same spot you were in and it was very like it was very humbling another situation was very humbling that that um i appreciate i totally appreciate so i don't know i mean i, I, this, I feel this is, like their conversations the the people that you have on this show uh, and in specific, Mareko, you know, when you hear him on Knife Talk, you know, he's getting, given a lot of advice. He's, you know, doing his thing, like, as you guys do, being funny and all that. But then um, when he starts talking about his, uh, his, you know, growing up, you know, just trying to fit in and, you know, what, you know, the reason. If you look at his story, it's similar to my story and your story and Preg's and all these people who are trying to fit in. It's like the classic story of, you know, a young man um, growing up. But it's interesting to hear his perspective and how, you know, one or two little details shifted his entire trajectory of his career, like going in and um, doing salsa dancing, for instance, you know. I had and never in my life it's unbelievable, heard man. of And then that's how he met Bob Kramer. I mean, come on. That, in my life, great. I've never heard a story that almost didn't happen. Right. That, there is, that's it. There is that's the never, one. You are never going to find a story of a, a chain a life-changing thing like that to the point where Mareko Momasi, one of the best yeah. knife makers of the, in the world, easy in the country, it was so almost didn't happen that it's a little bit like, I. it took me a while after that episode to just kind of compartmentalize the thing. Like, Did it fuck with your head a little bit? Like um, the butterfly effect? 
I talked with thing? my wife about it, uh, and I talked about the fact when we talk about you know what regrets you have and stuff like that. And I generally, when I was in high college, I, I you know I made jo- you know regrets about you know dumb things, nothing you know crazy. But like there is one moment that I have, I started to think when I was talking to my wife about it because I was talking to Mareka. Didn't almost Mareka was almost a pizza guy, and you know. Wherever he just it would, the yeah. chances of him getting that spot were, were I mean it was like he threaded the needle you know it was incredible it's an incredible story so I was talking to my wife about it and it's something that I talked about on the episode with Pat Quinn I I mentioned this guy Tom Ryan Tom Ryan is one of the great blacksmiths uh, in the east east coast and his blacksmith shop was in Long Island City in Queens uh, across from Roosevelt Island and it was attached to a non to a union shop so they would do construction stuff so tom was doing traditional blacksmithing and i had never known anything about it but he was, but it was a real shop it was an ornamental iron shop and i was working for a couple of metal workers and i actually i met Tom through these metal workers and this guy was just like I mean he was t- making t- he was twisting you know two inch square stock to make pickets it was creating like newel posts and shit and I didn't know, know anything about it I was just MIG welding in a shop you know you know hitting it everything with a wire brush and you know put some shellac on top and I he offered me a job he he, he had me visit him and I was, you know, I'd made the decision. I was about to get married, and I wanted. And my 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 in laws were nervous of the my wife, their daughter marrying a, you know, sculptor in Brooklyn. So I wanted to have backup, and I went and I signed and I p- paid the down payment for culinary school, and then I had made the decision that like at least I'm gonna have a backup, and then Tom offered me a job, and I had to turn it down because it was like, no, I'm I'm on this path now. And I know for a fact, I was talking to my wife about it, I know for a fact that if I had stayed on with 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 Tom, it would have propelled me. I would have been starting blacksmithing in 1996, right. you know, right. 1997, 98, as opposed to starting in, you know, 2005 or something like that. You're and chasing the dollar because that's what you thought you should be doing. You know, and I that's was, what the majority of people, I mean, that I, makes sense. I wasn't. I don't think I was chasing the dollar. I don't think I've ever been chasing the dollar. I think it was trying to give a degree of, of uh, trying to give a degree of confidence to my in-laws and you know oh. job security. I've never I, been like a um, like a money chasing guy. I've always been trying to do stuff that I want to do, and then but then at the same time, like I was devoted to my wife. You know, we've been together now. We've been together. 20 25 years coming up on 25 years something like that and it was you know i wanted her parents to not be worried you know but at the same time if like i know that if i took and she said to me she said to me i really kind of fucked you up didn't i i'm like no you didn't fuck me i i'm not i don't regret any decisions i've made but it was like if i had got taken that job in uh, in long island city for this high level ornamental blacksmith it, my life would have been totally different totally different i mean it's same same wavelength but I mean, like I would have been propelled. Yeah, well, I, I'm in a similar situation. You know, I've, I've been um, working in the technology world for the last 20 some years because that's what made me money, you know. Um, and it was I took the I took that position not because I fully wanted to do it. I just like you wanted to make sure that I had steady, you know, paycheck. Um, I never thought I would get rich per se you know, from, from, you know, following that path. Um, I, I feel like wealth is, um, I have a unique perspective on wealth 
a lot of people put a number, you know, they attribute, attribute a number to, you know, being wealthy or rich, you know, million dollars, $10 million, whatever it might be. Um, and, and I don't, I don't, I'm like you where I don't see, of course, money brings freedom and it, and it reduces stress. You know, those are all good things. But I, I personally think that the true wealth of anyone is based upon how they utilize their time. You know, right. um, being able to do the things you want to do at any given time is my metric for success. So I do see that, you know, when I went into the technology world and, and started my business in that regard, it was, um, it, it led me to where I am now, which gave me the freedom to sort of branch out into content creation. And then that ultimately led me into industrial manufacturing, which is even weirder. Um, <laughs> and I really enjoy all of those things. Those are all pieces and parts to my story. And had I not, you know, done the technology thing, I don't think I would have been able to do it. You know, I would have been uh, working for someone else most likely and just kind of stayed in that groove until I retired or, you know, had the idea that I could retire. Um, but I, at this point in my life, even back then, I last, I lasted about six years in the private sector doing work for someone else. And now I'm totally unemployable. Like you, if, if someone walked up to me and said, I'm going to give you a million dollars a year to run whatever, um, I would turn it away because I don't, I want to be able to follow my own path. I worked very hard to get to this point where I'm able to just, you know, do those things, you know, hmm. um, it's important to me. I, I really do. I, money is one thing and you need it to survive and you need a certain level of it to be somewhat stress-free. But, uh, now I think you and I are similar in age there's so much more that we have left to do that requires us to have the freedom of our own time. Hmm. That's very interesting because I think very similarly. And I, I recently, you know, we've been doing fader knives for, I mean, officially like, you know, like in the books, like five or five years or something like this, six years, like it, you know, you know, it wasn't really much of anything, but this has been like the first time, the first, the last three years have been the times where I sleep decently at night and I'm not mm. too, and you know, the pay, you know, the payrolls running, we never brown some checks. We're going, you know, we're doing well in the, in the tough times and like uh, January, February when no one's buying anything. And it's like, it's gotten to the point where I'm far more interested in the just nice, steady and upward decline, but not like, I don't need, you know, instantaneous mania, but I, I, I agree with you. Like I've, I've, I've become spoiled by, uh, spoiled by this, uh, this business. Couldn't do it. But it's I also I a double-edged sword too, right? I mean, you know, you're, you're locked into this thing and you probably put way more hours in than a standard, uh, you know, worker would you're you're putting over 40 hours a week in uh but you uh it, i always thought it was mark cuban that said this but it's not it's the woman on um, shark tank i can't think of her name now but she said that a not a true entrepreneur is somebody who is willing to work 80 hours a week to avoid working 40 hours a week for someone else and that's me to a t like i will bust my ass i will work so hard my fingers to the bone i will throw my back out i will be the guy in the shit constantly 
just to avoid having to go and, you know, punch a clock somewhere. And I think See, you're kind of the same way. You know, you're, you're really pushing towards that, that concept of a self-driven life. And, and I, I really know, respect that. I love that. I don't, you know, you're, you're giving me too much credit. I, I think that I've, as I've aged, I've become far more, with a lack of a better word, zen. I've become much more like willing. I've been more willing and more relaxed and more accepting and less judgmental. But in regards to you, when I think of you in general, in terms of as a, as a content creator, as a maker, as all the things that you're doing, you set yourself apart from most makers because you have more of a business and an entrepreneurial background. This is the this is the thing that we 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 bump up against when we're on knife talk and we're talking to young people trying to figure out how can I make this my full-time job? How can I make my passion the full-time job? And there's a lot of people who just and we've talked about this a lot where there's a lot of people who become good at one thing and they think okay, this is something that I'm going to do. Now I'm good at it. I'm going to get better at it and people are just going to pay me to do it. But they don't have it within them because they don't either. They don't have an experience. They don't have the experience, or they're unwilling. I find that there are a lot of makers are, they have a job where they've been an underling and they're sick of being told what to do, and then they've decided that they're going to start their own business and then become, you know, become. Uh, they're going to overcorrect what they, you know, the nonsense they had to deal with in their other jobs. But they're unwilling to be to accept the fact that business is different than just making stuff. You have created. You 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 have such a better background in terms of business, and it makes you very fascinating because of that. I think there's so many people out there that that romanticize the entrepreneurial, you know, lifestyle. They're seeing one thing, right? Uh, you look on Instagram and you just like look at the hashtag entrepreneur. And you just see, you know, people on private planes and doing whatever and, you know, driving fancy cars and all of that. Um, and some of that does exist, but that's like the top 1% of the 1%. You know, the majority of us are, are um, blue collar. We're not very smart, most of us, um, but we're willing to do the things that others are not. And we're also very um, uh, willing to uh, take big risks uh, with our own money and our own time because we believe in a concept. Um, YouTube was, uh, was something that I had always played around with. I was one of the early guys on YouTube in 2008, um, creating content for my tech channel. Um, and then I started seeing money coming in, you know, from ads and whatever. I started getting subscribers on my tech channel and, um, you know, I kind of let it fade, you know, because I was working, on building my business. I, right. I just couldn't focus on you. So, um, I just walked away from it for a while and then the checks just kept coming, you know, no content creation for a year or more. And YouTube is still sending me my monthly checks. Like how not much big checks? Um, you know, like a couple hundred bucks, like that's maybe not, two, that's not nothing. That's not nothing. That's not nothing. Uh, no, no, not at all. And, and then, uh, so I started really looking, I would go back and I would look at it and I'd go, you know, maybe if I just change this thumbnail and I would just play around with, it. did not focus on it very. So, um, about three years ago, I decided that I hated what I was doing. So, uh, if you can imagine building a business, a lot of people, uh, attribute that to say raising a child, you right. know, uh, very similar. Uh, I started to really resent that child. And it was because it had gotten kind of away from me. You know, I had four employees, um, 
managerial work with people is not my strong suit. I am a conversational person, uh, but I'm more of an introvert and I have very little patience for, uh, for management of people's egos, if that makes sense. And that's really hard to do when you're running a business because you've got all these people who are looking up to you going, Hey man, look at what I did today. And you know, and I'm just like turning around going, yeah, that's your fucking job. That's why you get a paycheck. You don't need to show me all this shit. Like I totally get it. I'm, I'm a little bit cut and dry when it comes to that stuff. Well, they're just um, trying. People, to, they're try, trying to. They're trying to make sure that you don't that you don't fire them. I mean, yeah. that's that's. Oh, that's, that's good. Good. Hey, yeah. look what I just did! I'm doing my job. <laughs> don't fire me. Yeah, don't fire me, please. And you know, it's one of those things where you're like, hey, you know, I get it. You're, you know, if I, I I'm a very direct person. So if I have a, I have an issue with you, like I'll just straight up pick up the phone or pull you into my office and be like, hey, this is what I like. This is what I don't like, and. And we kind of work from there. And you and I have talked about setting boundaries and expectations with people and being very clear about those boundaries and expectations. When I hire somebody, I, you know, put a piece of paper in front of them with a list of items that they're going to agree to do for a dollar amount every year. And that's it. And I slide it over the table. I make them sign it. And then I say, listen, if you don't do these items, then you've stepped over a boundary. And then, you know, that's the problem. So we're going to have to, you know, whatever. Most people are very, that makes it very clear to them what their duties are. You know? But other people, for some reason, it's like the minute they sign it, they've forgotten. You know, right. <laughs> you know they've immediately oh, they got forgotten. Past, they got in the door. They got, they in, got the in the door. door. Yeah. And, and the state of Florida is a right to work state. You, you know, I don't have to keep you on. I don't have to do any sort of like, you know, keeping records for HR and all that. It doesn't exist down here. You know, the sky is blue. You're fired. Goodbye. You know, kind of thing. And it sucks that that's the relationship you have with your employees, which by the way, I'm not a tyrant. I don't fire people all the time. It's it's not. I thought the sky's not blue. I thought you just, you're firing people (laughs) left and right. Brian, come on, man. I, 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 I see the, these relationships that I have with these guys, you know, you have to kind of keep, it's so difficult. You're, you're walking this very fine line with them, you know, where you're they're sort of their friend, you're your boss, you know, you're working together, uh, you know, you're in the shit together or whatever. But when things don't go the right way or somebody doesn't do their job and, and, you know, that's been addressed a few times, it's tough. It's like the worst thing in the world where like I had to let a guy go and it was for only the only reason was, is that he just was not the right fit for the job wasn't a bad guy he showed up on time he was you know good he just couldn't do the work and 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 you know i I had to sit this guy down and be like man let me tell you what you're just you're not the right kind of guy for this kind of work and and so you can't work here anymore but here's what i'll offer you you know and i i you know i cut him loose in the middle of the week he had the rest of the week to go find a job and i paid him for that time so, you know, I said, look, I'm going to, your paycheck goes till Friday. It's Tuesday. Hey, you know, you have all these days, you're going to get paid and just be aware that anybody that calls me in a ref from for reference, I'll give you a positive reference. And I, you know, this is, but this is what I think you should do. You should look for a job that isn't this. You're, you know, you're applying for jobs that expect you to do X, Y, Z. You're not good at X, Y, Z. It's not built into you. But what you are good at is this. When that guy left, you could tell he was uncomfortable. You know, it sucked. It was an awful conversation to have. But I have been the, I have been that guy, by the way, who got cut loose from jobs that I love 
and my boss literally opened a, a book, wrote me my final check, handed me a pink slip and said, you're fired. You know, we're downsizing or whatever. And here's your severance. Good luck to you. And, you know, that to me was just, I wish somebody had taken the time to say like, you know, Hey, this is what I think you should do. Go to here, here and here and figure it out. Taking that little five minutes of time really made a difference in this kid's life. And on, by the way, he got a job that week. You know, somebody called me from another competitor. He wanted to know all about him. I said, sure, let's talk. I told him all the things that we had discussed. I said, you know, he's just really not good on the road. Hmm. He's really great at these things. If you can hire him to do these things, he'll just, he'll rock it for you and be a great employee. Kid got hired and now he's in a way better position than he had when he was with. The but these are the things that like, if you're like starting a small business, and as a you know, creative person making stuff, these are the things you don't realize you have to do. You know, yeah. you might have had a job beforehand where you're in this position, but I mean, the 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 unfortunate problems with being um, a, a small business person, especially when I say small business, I'm talking about bakeries and shit like that. I'm talking about like, you know, yeah. guys who want to be knife makers or guys who want to be blacksmiths or guys who want to make railings. You don't realize that it's fun to be, it's fun and it's exciting and it's independent, but some people just don't have it within them to administrate. They don't. And it's, well, and it's the reason why a lot of people can't, you know, they send us, I mean, you have no idea how many people send messages to Dive Talk saying, how can I make it to the next step? How can I make the next step? And then you don't realize that business is, it isn't for everybody. Well, if, if some of those people are listening right now, I would like to give some of their, some advice to them. And because I, I have this conversation a lot with the same types of people who are asking me, Hey, I want to, I want to start a business and I want to, let's just say make knives because that's easy. Right. And, um, not that making knives is easy, but sure it is. You, easy, told, you, you uh, said that's a hot take. Yeah, it's a hot take. So my first step for anybody starting a business, I always ask like, what's the scalability of this thing? Just remember, you're like one guy, you know, how many knives can you make in a year by yourself? And then, you know, how many knives can you sell? And then, and then how many emails are you going to have back and forth? Are you going to have a product that's going to be a standard product that you're going to be able to sell? Are you going to be able to send that blank out to a laser cutter and have your heat treating done for you somewhere else? Because those are all things that are going to eat up your time when you should be doing social media and marketing. And it, immediately the look on their face is like panic. You know, they're right. just like, wait, I never even thought about this. What they're looking at is they're looking at a small workshop with a select few tools and some basic skills. And they're going to be able to churn out, uh, you know, say maybe three, four knives a week and turn around and sell those knives to say three to $400 a piece if they're really good. Um, and so, you know, when you start to add that up, you, you know, it takes a lot of knives to make a a decent living. You really need to think that through and, you know, start talking about outsourcing and moving things into the realm of, you know, maybe hiring a person or a helper or somebody to get you, get you moving faster. You wouldn't believe the, the, uh, efficiency that happens when you hire a helper, somebody that can do just like, say profiling or, or putting in primary bevels or, you know, just, taking little things off of your plate so that you can do the real meat and potatoes of the business. However, I will say getting to that point where you'll feel comfortable 
cutting somebody a check every week for hanging out in your shop and helping you do your work, that is extremely, um, it's a, it's a hard hump to get over. You know, when I hired my first guy, I thought, Oh my God, I'm responsible for this person and their ability to make money. It was, it was almost worse than paying myself. If that, well, of course, I understand 100%. But it's not just cutting that person a check. It's cutting, you know, checks to the government and Social yep. Security and, yep. you know, dealing yep. with sales tax and dealing with this, that. And the other thing, I just, I'm, I, I just, I'm very fortunate because I made a decision a long time ago when I first started this, this business. And, I, and it was, and it was to, it was to comfort my wife. And not just say, I'm just going to be, you know, selling shit out of my trunk and putting money in them under the mattress, which my life would be a lot better <laughs> financially if I had done that. But it would have been, you know, short lived. Um, I think that I had to make the decision that I suck at business. I didn't do a good job as an artist. So why should I think that I'm going to be good at this? And I'm going to find someone who will compensate my lack of not being a good business person to make this work. And that, that was one of the best that of all of it. That was the best decision I made in this whole thing. Having a business Tony, partner right? who is it? Yeah. Tony my partner, does. Tony, who, who, who does an amazing job. And I, he and I have been, he and I've been friends for 20 years and as a business relationship, it's been excellent. Um, we've had to make a few slight changes based on, you know, because of the pandemic, they're moving thing. We had to move stuff and yeah. move stuff around. But at the same time, it's like I have a confidence in what we're doing. And a lot of it's because I'm addressing the issues that I'm just not good at or will be good at. You know, I don't, I don't have the ability to – I was in management positions, but I just – in terms of business, I – you know, it just wasn't for me. I just, I don't have a good, I don't have a, I don't have an objective sense. You have to have like a, you have to separate yourself from your work when you're selling. And yeah. I think that's a real hard thing to do uh, when you've got a connection to your work, especially in an, any artistic endeavor like knife making, um, there's so many factors, so many things you have to know and learn and do, and you have to get them right. And one small decision, you know, changes the whole trajectory of the project. And then, then you have to like turn around and sell that to somebody. And that's a real difficult, uh, metric to understand, uh, even, even emotional, you know, what do you want to get for this piece? And who does it go to? Or are you just going to like straight up make like the same knife over and over and over and sell it that way? Um, it, it's a, it's a whole thing, man. And let me, let me just like switch gears real quick on, on this. I would Please. like to, I would like to tell you what my strategy is. Cause I think people should know exactly what I think as far okay. as, you know, my business venture doing content creation and industrial manufacturing. Go ahead. First and foremost, I believe content creation is the future of any business endeavor. So that should be like the step that you get your face out there, however you do it, whether it's TikTok or Instagram or YouTube, you should have at least two social media uh, outlets where you have some audience people following what you're doing. And then the other caveat of that is you kind of have to be a little bit likable. And 
that's tough for some people and no offense, but not everybody is interesting and not everybody is um, easily likable. But here's how you can get around that. Because some people are like, oh, I could never put a camera in front of my face. I could never show what you know you show or talk about the things you talk. Here's why people, I think, find my, my journey interesting is that I don't cover up anything. So I'm not sitting here telling you one thing and then doing another. I, I'm sharing my journey every step of the way and people recognize the genuine sort of face that I put out there and tell people like, hey, this is what I'm doing. This is why. And this is why I think it's important because I'm not doing anything unique here. Uh, what I'm doing is unique to me because it's affiliated with me specifically. Right. And that's the only thing I got going for myself. I have zero original ideas other than my approach problem. Hmm. So now that I've got two social media outlets that I'm not even that well known on, by the way, if you look at my contemporaries, you'll, you'll see that there's people out there that far exceed, you know, the, the audience and they're, they're doing similar things, but in different uh, arenas. My following is quite small. You know, it, it's like uh, at the time of this recording, I think I have like 2,700 followers on Instagram and I have about thir like 33,000 on YouTube. Those are my two big uh, out. But what I do have, like what I really take pride in is the core 100, which are the people who are following me and are, are dedicated to what I'm doing and believe in the things that I'm doing. And they're behind me 100%. Uh, and you'll, you'll see that on Facebook. Like if you go on the, the DIY grinders group that I have on Facebook, it's growing. You know, 100 members every day are joining that group. And they're, they're there to kind of, you know, facilitate people doing things like building and making machines in their home garages. You know, it's like home engineering. Kind right. Of. You know, we're doing things that are a little bit outside of, you know, common manufacturing. But what we're doing is we're sharing ideas. Uh, and and I, did you listen to, um, I think it's Josh, Josh Smith's uh, interview with Don Fogg? Oh, you didn't. Okay. I didn't yet. I didn't no. yet. I if love I could, Josh. If I could encourage, I love him too. I, so if I could encourage you to listen to it. I listen. I listen to it. I listen. I love Josh. I talked to him before he started doing his podcast, and I gave him. I talked to him for hours in regards to. You know, I have to catch up on Josh. I saw. I listened to the first one. Mm -hmm. and I got to catch up. If you if you pick one out of the crowd, pick Don Fogg, because Don we'll has a real similar. Um, sort of mentality, sort of approach that I have, which is back in the day, when we're talking the late 60s, early 70s, when he started uh, knife making and started his blacksmithing career, there wasn't the internet. So there was only, the only way you could share ideas was with other knife makers going to different shows and sharing concepts and ideas. They still follow this same concept. And um, uh, Jesse and Ben, uh, uh, you had Jess, uh, Jess on the show. Uh, I love her, by the way. I love Ben. Um, uh, Naruda. I always mess up their last name. I'm terrible at saying Uwe it. But, uh, Uweta. 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 Jess Nuweta. And uh, Ben has the same idea. He did a TED Talk on it. Give away everything. Give it away. And watch what comes back. And it's important. And Don follows that same idea we're better if we collaborate. You'll hear me say this all the time. 
even the people who are stealing my ideas, which by the way are just bastardized incestual ideas from other people, I still don't shut them out. I still think it's important because we're they're at least doing something. You Let's know? just wait, just I'm gonna That's just back up a hair. I want to back up a hair. Sure. You you one of the things that you do is you have one of your one of your businesses is that you've uh you've created a DIY two by seventy two grinder. Yeah. And it's called the Revolution. This is Mark Four. Yeah, we're we're just branching out of Gen three into Gen four. Yep. So you can go and buy one of his grinders, and then you, if you, if you, it's a, it's a great, it's great because you get them CNC'd out and laser cut out, and then you, you have the, the way to put it together. And if you're a welder and you're, you know, you like to build things, this is perfect for you. You've, you've, you, it's been a remarkable because of um, what you've been doing and the success that you've had, but also the fact that you have created this incredible. Um, group on facebook called diy grinders i just wanted my listeners to know that you know you have this small company and then people can buy your grinders and then you can weld them all up at home get yourself a, a motor shove it on and and then you're in business yeah and and that that concept by the way came from the same problem that a lot of knife makers have in the beginning is that the barrier for entry is quite high when right. you when you start you know looking at the tooling needed to do this work, uh, and I I felt the same way you know I was like well I, I want to build something and that that actually was a total accident by the way like I I had taken uh, a design from um, Dan over at DC Knives he's a prolific uh, sort of documenteur of the knife making journey I don't know if you know Dan but he's a, a guy up in Canada and he just he has a great blog and he writes, you know, all these excellent articles about understanding, you know, single phase versus three phase power and VFDs and motors. And I mean, you, you name it. If you go to his, um, his blog, uh, it's, it's fantastic. And he gives it all away. Again, another guy, you know, just basically handing you information An awesome guy. Uh, and I built this grinder and then uh, I realized it had a lot of limitations because it was a very basic grinder and I wanted something a little bit more, you know, um, versatile. And also I threw a knife into my neighbor, uh, my apron while I was grinding uh, and doing something and I felt like I needed a, some safety feature. So I decided to design one and then film my process of doing this on YouTube. And at the time I had like maybe 10,000 followers on, on, that was a, a little over a year ago. The response from me just doing that on YouTube was enormous. Hmm. You know, anytime I put anything out there about the two by 72 belt grinder project, I would immediately double and triple my number. So I would be seeing these trends in my analytics, you know, people wanting to understand why these machines do what they do and why they're so good. And can I build my own and whatever else? So, um, I decided, uh, that I was going to put a plan set together and call it a day, you know, charge 20 bucks, 25 bucks for a plan set, throw it up there. It would cover my costs on the first day. I sold 500 sets oh, of plans of plans, which immediately gave me that's some insane. capital. That's insane. Right. And, and I'm talking 10,000, 12,000 followers at this point on YouTube. So 500 people gave me $25 to, to, uh, send them a PDF. And I did that. And then, um, I, 
happened? Oh, I got a phone call from somebody who had bought the plans down in Texas. And he said, you know, I have access to a laser cutter. I want to start putting your kits together. If you would send me the files, you know, let's just see what this looks like. So I, uh, he, he, and he approached it in a very unique way, by the way. So he, when he told me he wanted to do this, I'm like, I don't know this guy. He follows me on YouTube. He bought my plans. He wants to partner with me essentially and create this small business. What do I have to lose? You know, honestly, you know, I didn't have this before. This wasn't something I had before. Right. And the clincher, this is the thing that he told me that really sent it over the edge. He says, do you know who Dave Ramsey is? I said, yes. And he said, Dave says uh, that you have to align yourself with people who you feel are going to be successful and give them something they don't have in exchange for getting in their sphere of influence. So I'm willing to do this for you at a low margin so that I can become a member of your sphere of influence. Hmm. Wow. That that's a very uh, enlightened, enlightened thing for yeah. someone to say, huh? Yeah. Hit you exactly. with the open sesame, didn't he? Stroke my balls and I will, I'll go a long way for you. That's, that's I mean, how that was I like, work it, man. He, he knew exactly <laughs> what to tell you. He did. He did. And, it, and I thought, wow, okay, what a great approach. I talk to Matt every day, by the way. Like, he is probably one of my closest people. But, like, we've been doing this together now for a year and a half. And, man, unbelievable response to this project. And, you know, I, I think there's a lot of people out there that want this industrial machine that just simply can't afford it. So right. when we, when we, when people call us, by the way, and they go, Hey, don't you sell like a complete kit that just is already built and shipped to my house? I'm like, go to Broadbeck. Like that's what Broadbeck Ironworks does. We don't do that. This is a low barrier of entry. And <laughs> believe it or not, this is how this, <laughs> the podcast got named was I would tell people like, if you want this thing and you want to pay a low fee for it, you got to work for it. Right. I kept, I would say that to them. And I felt very like dad, you know, I'm yeah. got to work for it. You know, if you really want something, you got to go out there and work for it. You know, the whole thing. And that's how it started. <laughs> and, um, and so, you know, we, we started this whole thing where if people wanted to, to have tools that they couldn't, uh, you know, cut a check for pre-built, we educated them and said, look, just like anything in this world, you have to throw a little elbow and if you want to do that, then your barrier to entry is way low. Hmm. And that's how it starts. I think it's very interesting because, you know, because the 2x72 the grinder has become so, you know, synonymous with knife making. And I know that um, it's just, it's fascinating to me because you've, you know, one of the fascinating things to me is the how technology has changed because, you know, now everyone has access to a, a laser cutter or or a plasma cutter, you know, a CNC, whatever. I, I mean, I'm just I'm amazed at how re readily available. And I and I've I, I had, yeah I was listening to your podcast. Uh, we listening to work for it when I was sick, and you you were talking about the I had never heard of your uh, 
DIY grinder group on Facebook, and you're having some issues with some some people because it's <laughs> tons it's, of drama out there, <laughs> dude. It got me to the point where I was just like, let's go. I'm lying flat on my back. Let's you got go see fascinated with it. It was I great. got I started texting. It was like, all right, what's the name of this guy? Who, who you're talking? About? What was the name of the guy you're talking about? And I, and I got onto your thing, and I one of the things that I was surprised about is how how readily available people have access to laser cutters like that yeah. surprised me like yeah. i felt like almost everybody who wasn't getting one of your kits had access to these laser cutters or you know the, the having the technical ability to use the fusion 360 or sketchup or whatever and they were yeah. able to have these parts made and i know that um tyler bell gets stuff made all the time my good friend the the first person i ever saw who was just readily available was getting stuff cut all the time was cliff dufton he was having parts made and sure. he would make these he would have you know for when he and john ariani were making their presses they were constantly making evolutions of the of the CAD drawings. He was doing all the CAD work himself. He's got all the CAD work for his guillotine tools and for his for the grinders that he builds and for everything. And I'm just amazed at how technology has given everybody the ability to um, have really really well made pieces cut. You know, back in the day, you can, you, you know, I have I have a couple of uh, I have a couple. Uh, 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 Beaumont Beaumont grinders, oh, yeah. I, nothing, right. hardly anything CNC cut on there. It's it's all you know. It's like a plate sheared and stuff is welded together. You know, so yeah. I, I'm just amazed at how readily available technology is making it so people can you know build these pro these projects and, and and create these companies. If you can think about it in like a two dimension first, you know, draw it out in fusion. And, and, and you have like a basic concept in your mind and then, and then you kind of put it together like Legos right. in fusion, and then you export it to these DXF files and send it to a 2d CNC machine, which could be water jet, laser, plasma, whatever it is that you have access to. You can like create anything. I I'm, I'm, I'm painting a narrative, Jeff, this, so to give you some history of my child, my father, uh, I grew up in a town, uh, called Rockford, Illinois. Uh, we were a manufacturing uh, a town where we made a lot of stuff. Uh, like my aunt worked for a company called Forest City Gear who makes all the gears for the Mars rover that just landed hmm. on Mars. Like that's uh, like the, have you ever used an S-wing hammer? You have, those sure. are made in my hometown. You know? uh, things are made in rock. They were, you know, uh, made there. When I was a kid, my dad spent a majority of his time flying over to China and what he was doing is he was setting up factories over there in the um, early to mid 80s to start the uh, what I like to call the migration of manufacturing uh, and it went away from the United States and into China now did my dad know that that you know what he was up to was gonna lead to what we have today uh, probably not I mean he was just doing his job he was a quality right. control guy you know that's that's what he was doing but ultimately, by the time I had grown up, gone to school, um, and gotten my degree and moved back home, uh, there was 18% unemployment in Rockford. Crime rates are super high. It was the number one most dangerous city on the FBI's most dangerous city list for many years. Huh. Um, it's a very dangerous place to live. Um, you know, lots of crime there. Um, and, and it was because all those people that support 
that was the economy there that was manufacturing was, was shipped off to China and was made, you know, everything just kind of went over there because it was cheaper. I'm painting a picture now that we're seeing this. We're seeing what that means, which is like lower quality goods. Again, lower access, lower, you know, lower barrier to uh, entry and a lot of things that people have access to, including laser cutters. They're all made over there. This is great. We brought China up from a third world country to a first world country in a matter of 20 some years. Okay. And we did it by giving them our manufacturing sector. However, in America now, I think there is a lack of people who believe that working with your hands and doing engineering and all these things that we're good at, they don't believe that it can be done anymore. In fact, there's a whole bunch of people who message me on the regular who believe that the American dream is dead. You know, they, they really are concerned, you know, for this country and what we have here. And I am trying to paint a picture because I came from the town where it was all done, a town, part of that, where it was just, it was ravaged by the loss of manufacturing, clawed my way out of the lower class into the middle class. And I did it all with the, the grit of my own teeth. And I did it in America. And in fact, I started my company, my first real company in 2006 in the worst economic uh, depression that this country has seen since, uh, you know, the 1930s. Hmm. When you start to, when anyone tells me like, Hey, this isn't possible anymore. My, I, before they can even get that sentence out of their mouth, I'm bullshit, 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 bullshit. You, you have now access to way more than we ever did 25 years ago. You just got to learn how to play the game. You got to get in there. You got to start playing. You got to start talking to people, collaborating and doing things. Using those strategies, you can rise up and rise up back. I, I truly believe the American dream is not. Now, I agree with you with the exception of, and one of the things I, I, I you and I talk often and I, I enjoy it because we have a lot of similarities, but we also, you know, we're different people. I think that you're very inspiring, especially on your podcast, but I take, I don't take umbrage with, but I don't believe that everybody has it within them to claw themselves, claw their way up. Yeah. I, I have a very uh, different opinion in regards to, there's some people that just make excuses and they, they, they don't have it within them. One of the things about this podcast I'm finding is, especially with the people I'm talking to, was the people have become the people that they always were and it's very hard to make deep down changes on the person that you are and if people are not motivated they're not going to just one day wake up and become motivated i don't i don't believe it you know so well, then they should I, just shut the fuck up then well i mean but here's the thing now now we're getting back into the drama of your you know one of the things that i you have a you have a cast iron stomach for the bullshit you have to deal with on these Facebook groups and the and the YouTube comments, but you're, you're very very uh, willing to accept you know whatever is spawned at you. Now, when you've created something like what the revolutioner, you know you you know your grinder, and then you see some people making your grinder, and then making tiny adjustments, but really saying this is something you said on your podcast 
this is one guy. I don't know him, and and I'm not nothing to do with him. Honestly, it's just about the question. Is the fact that you've made something, you've created something with your sweat and your 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 energy and your intelligence and your your backbone and your grit from your teeth and all that shit. And these guys, they take the, what you have and then they just make a couple changes and then now it's their design. Yes. I'm, I'm, um, I'm, uh, if that happened to me, I don't think I'd be able to handle it as well as you do. I'm very childish. I, I, I would be unreasonable. I would be very unreasonable. I, yeah. I mean, your first initial reaction, I, I guess it's all about how I, I, you have to kind of see the big picture, right? So the, the guy that did that, who copied my design and then claimed it to be his own, he was immediately called out by everyone on that group. And I didn't even have to say anything. Wasn't, you know, it was very obvious. And the guy continued to sort of keep the blinders on. You know, I would imagine this person is very hard-headed. Uh, you know, he's just like, no, I, I disagree. You know, I made this, this, and this change. And, you know, I, I see that it, you think it's identical, but it's not, you know. Uh, and so <laughs> believe it or not, I actually kind of, um, empathize with the, with him in a way, because I also feel like he took the time to do it. Granted, I don't like his approach. I really dislike his approach. However, he learned a lot. And in fact, a lot of people in that group learned a lot too. Um, and I learned a lot because I looked into like, you know, intellectual property management and patents. And I came back with um, what I'd always believed, and that is patents are bullshit. They, they're, they're designed for people who have a lot of money to take other people with a lot of money or time or whatever to court. And it's just, just a true distraction from what we're really, uh, what we really should be doing with our time. And that's the advancement of the human race. Okay. And I know that sounds silly. Like people are going to go, Oh, well, that's such bullshit. You know, you want to make money, you want to be rich and all that. Uh, you know, I've had money. I've not had money. You know, the money is one thing, but when you get to a certain point in your career, you realize there's a lot more to life than that. Uh, it's like your legacy. Like what, what are you going to leave behind now? Uh, you've got all this time and energy and money or whatever. You're going to, what are you going to do with all that? You know, I'm, I'm going to be dust very soon. You know, I'm going to be back to earth, you know, and, and who the fuck am I, you know, but here's what I can leave behind a whole bunch of steel that was configured in a way that gave people and empowered people to make money with their own hand. I think it's a beautiful legacy. And if this guy takes my design and makes it better, more power to him. You know, like, hey, you did it. Cool. Here's my other argument for this, though. Not only is the design, there's just one thing. One part of this is the design is one thing. The rest of this now is the marketing and the logistics and the production and putting it all together, and the support, by the way, you know, how many emails I get every day, people asking me questions about things that, you know, want, they want to know about, even people who don't spend any money with my company at all, and I answer them, and it's more than just a design. There's all of this background work that makes a company a company, and if you don't have any one of those pieces, you're probably going to fail. You'll fizzle out and fail. So that's, you know, if, you know, I, I, I think competition in the free market is by far the best thing because it, it, it motivates us to do better with everything that we do. All right. Here's the question I have for you. You're very inspiring. I've said it already. You're, you're very inspiring. You're very driven. 
and there's something within you that is very admirable. Now, on a personal level, do you think, and I know that, I don't know if this is a subject you've talked about on the podcast before, you had cancer a number of years ago. Yeah. Do you think having, and, and God bless you that you're in remission, God bless you, I'm happy for you. I, you're talking Thank to you. a guy who, my both sides of my family have been riddled with cancer, and I know that's probably going to be what I'm going to end up having later in life, but fine. Do you think that coming to grips with having cancer and kind of fighting through it changed your focus at all? Absolutely. Yeah. I was coasting when I got cancer. Uh, I was uh, just living life, kind of doing my own thing. I was still married to my first wife, the mother of my children. Um, things were really uh, easy. You know, I had no, mm. I had no concerns. Uh, and then I got sick and it changed everything. So when I, when I got out of all of that and got better, <laughs> it was a catalyst to a lot of change, including, you know, my divorce and, um, a little bit of a midlife crisis. I think, you know, when you go through some, when you start staring at your own mortality, uh, weird shit happens to you in, real quick in your mind, you start thinking about, you know, a lot of stuff that wouldn't normally think about. And, uh, you start making some decisions that may or may not be so healthy, you know, um, I, I'm in a good place now, but I definitely was an idiot, you know, uh, 10 years ago. And so even all before, I'll say this even all the time, like every 10 years is a massive changeover with most people. They start looking back and they start seeing the decisions they made. I mean, man, I was an absolute moron for so many years. And I think, uh, I thank God that I got sick because it did help me through and help me kind of rise up and brought my true potential to the surface. Because I can only imagine that like, especially, I mean, I, I mean, I'm assuming that you were you know, in your thirties when, when that happened, you got two little kids and there's, I can't imagine what that feels like. And the only thing I can close, my sister had cancer when I was very young and then my dad ended up dying of cancer. But at the same time, at, a, at, a, at 30 years old, you know, especially with the family, it has to, it has to change you in a way of like, okay, there needs to be some urgency going on. Because I feel like, you know, one of the things I feel like with a lot of makers, young makers, is there's, there's, there's this, not there's this sense of hu being hungry. You know, you hear about like fighters, like the best fighters, uh, you know, whatever, whatever fighting, they don't have anything and this is their only shot and they're just hungry because they need it and they, they understand and they need it. And then all of a sudden they get a little bit of money. And next thing you know, they're not as good as they used to be. I see that there's a degree of urgency and hunger within you. And I'm just, I can tell, I just made the assumption that that was for one of the, one of the things that, I would think that a, a, um, something like that in your life would spurn on a different sense of urgency. I mean, I don't know if I recognize it right away, but yeah, down the line, you start back and think, you know, you made some choices that may not have been the best based upon the feelings you were having that you didn't fully understand. You know, uh, mm. it was, uh, uh, I would uh, go when I would go to get the surgeries to have some of it removed or whatever, um, I would go by myself. And that uh, really, like, no one offered to go with, with them. Yeah, um, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, and I realized, like, holy shit, <laughs> I'm alone, you know, right. whoa, you know, that's not cool. Uh, that's a terrible feeling. Um, 
and it's not that I have a, my family was bad or anything. It's just timing and all that, but it's still, it still really, uh, hit me kind of hard. So, you know, you just, every, we're only every single day is a gift, man. Like, you know, if you're doing something with your time that you love and your time is, is, uh, yours to have at least a couple hours a day, you're doing better than most people. So, you know, I look at it, I look at every day like that, you know, that one day I could just go, you know, get a call or, you know, once I get my scans done or whatever, they could say, you know, Hey, you got to come back and do more treatments or whatever. Uh, I'm ready for it. You know, I would, I would gladly live. I really want to live, um, you know, but, um, it's good. It's nice that my kids are older now. So, you know, they're a little bit, I, of course, I wouldn't want to pass on it, but you know, yeah, I, of yeah, co- they of were course. super little. When of I course, you're, t- you're too busy. You're too busy to even you know contemplate that. So, be, be honest with you, I, I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm interested in 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 the all the different. I, I heard on uh, you were on a podcast. You were on um, Devin's podcast, um, the Art of Craftsmanship, and you were talking yes. about you had you were like a you had like a beehive removal company. <laughs> you had you it was were more a, of a hobby. Were, yeah. What'd you say? It was a, a hobby. Beer. It was more of a hobby. So like, I, I really love, I wanted to learn how to keep beats. You know, I was, I was, in fact, that's one of my first YouTube videos I ever put up in 2008 was uh, a bee rescue. And uh, we, I got very quickly became known in our community down here as the guy who would come and get the bees out of your wall. Uh, you know, and, and it was because I would do it for free and people, you know, love that. And I was not trying to kill the bees. I was trying to rescue them. And, and yeah, I told that story about, there's a, there was a house that was on CNN. They called it the bee house that was like up the street from me. And it, they called it that because there were so many different hives that had lived in this house. It was like a frame style house. This little hippie chick lived in there and he's like, Oh, you know, it, it, now let me paint you this picture. Right. So she's my, she's my friend and you know, I see her out and doing whatever. And she's like, you know, I'm really wanting to get rid of these bees. It's getting a little out of hand at my house. I was wondering if you'd come over and, you know, take a look at it. So I said, sure. So I go over to her house and, uh, immediately I could smell honey, like in her house. It just smelled like, like bees, you know, and I'm looking around and on the corners of every window in her house, there's bees on the inside trying to get out. So there's now bees in her house. She has been living, like cohabitating with these bees. She says, there's a real big hive in my closet. And, um, you know, you know, come in here. We move the, you know, the A-frame style house. So, that, you know, you got the, the roof that's like cantilevered over your head. We move all the clothes away. And I just put my hand on the wall. And a lot of people don't know this, but bees create heat. So you can feel, you know, where these bees are set oh inside God. the wall. And I, uh, I, so I, I grab, uh, my bee suit, you know, my, I have why this you, thing that why I, why did you want to do, why did it, was this a hobby? What, what made this up be a hobby? Bees are fascinating. Are they, they are fascinating animals. Yeah. They're, they're just, um, I wish I could, I wish I was in a space where I could keep bees again, to be honest. There it's, it's a fascinating, you get a, you have a relationship with these insects, um, uh, I, I honestly, I think I'm just a really curious person. So yeah. I really wanted to know what it was like. So that Clearly. that part, part of it. <laughs> and, uh, so I grabbed my V suit. I have got this thing, a shop vac that's connected. Now, if you can imagine a big long hose 
with a with like you know the end on it right shot back four inch hose that goes into a beehive and then another hose that comes out the other side with a sort of a one-way valve screen that goes into a shop back so i've got this we call it the bee vac and we cut the wall open where these bees are and this hive is huge we're talking six plus feet tall get I mean, the you know, fuck out over of my head you know big uh in inside of the the rafters is house and i'm cutting away and i'm pulling it away and now if you've ever worked with bees they have a personality immediately you'll find out are they pissed off the hive has a personality start, yeah the hive has a personality they talk to each other they send signals to each right. other and and it's how that you'll you'll kind of sense it when you're working with and um immediately upon opening the wall of this of this uh, closet, I realized that these bees are not like the standard European bee. These must be more aggressive, okay? And it's because they're dive bombing. Like, uh, you know, if you can imagine, a big, you know, the helmet that you wear with the big face protecting yeah. thing, they're flying and, and trying to, they're basically killing themselves to try to get through my suit, which is not normal. That is not, uh, you know, it, it's normal in some regards, but when you're using smoke and you're trying to calm the bees and nothing is working. So I realized quickly that this is probably an Africanized uh, hive. What does that mean? It means that there, there, there's, a, there's a specific uh, breed of bee that comes from Africa and they're very aggressive. They, you know, people get killed, you know, by Jesus. Uh, you know, getting too close to hives and stuff. And they've, what they've done is they've crossbred with the European bee. A lot of people don't know this, but I'm a big bee nerd, so I'll well, tell you. Apparently, bees are you have not a bee native suit in your to car. Oh, You've yeah, got the bee totally. back in your car, shit, too. Man. Oh, hell yeah, hell yeah. We're, we're always ready. We're always uh, Bees are not native to the United States. They were brought here. They're, huh. they're native to Europe, and they, they were brought here to pollinate our crops, and that's exactly what they do. That's why we have them everywhere. They're awesome to have. They're great. Uh, beings i love i love seeing them flying around there's no reason to be afraid of a bee when people are like oh my god there's a bee flying around my head they're probably just smelling your hairspray or something they, so there was they're never ne they're not there were never bees in the united states before we brought them over from europe i believe that's the case yeah i think it was uh they were they were brought over for pollination purposes when we started heavy agriculture in this, hmm. in this country and maybe somebody will prove me wrong or whatever but that's uh, what i podcast. did here don't worry yeah, that's well, a hot take know, hey, we're taking don't worry you know, i'm you with you know. you never know and uh so yeah so you, have you ever seen like trucks driving down the road with beehives on them no you ever seen that no so <laughs> where are you it, this fucking is a, living Dude, this, this is never a business heard of my life this is a business and we have it in florida because we grow a lot of citrus here but uh there are apiaries uh beekeepers that do this professionally they load their hives up on trucks and they will drive them out to your farm and they will set them up and those bees will pollinate your fields. Huh. It's a business. Yeah. It's like rent. And how do you get right? them back? They, at night, they go back into their hive. So it's a, it's every a single one instinct. of them all accounted for every single one. Absolutely. That's crazy. Yeah. And it's because the queen who is releasing a pheromone, the bees are, are drawn back to that pheromone and, and uh, man, fascinating beings, these things. Uh, if you really start digging into what bees can do, it's really cool stuff. Um, but anyway, so we pull this wall uh, down. We've got bees 
flying all over the place or dive bombing my head. And I realize I I'm in the middle of a Africanized hive. I'm going to go ahead and still rescue the, the queen and move her into the BVAC. And then the, the hive will move over to that and we'll just take them out to a farm or something somewhere where they're not going to bother anybody. And, uh, I now, because it's an A-frame style house, I have to get on my hands and knees to sort of get down into the lower part of the hive. And I'm being stung through my bee suit because it's tight. You know, I'm now right, on my hands right, and knees. Right, right, Everything's right. kind of up against my skin. When I got out of there, I probably had more than 60 stings. You know, my legs were completely swollen. And, and I don't swell from bee sting. You know, I'm, I'm not very allergic to them. But because I had been stung so many times, my body started to produce histamine. And, um, yeah, just this wild shit, man. And got the bees out of there, got them in their hive, and uh, relocated them to an organic farm out, um, you know, north of town a little bit. And then uh, they bulldozed that house because the bee problem was so bad. Uh, her father was like a wealthy developer or something, and he was just like, look, fuck this house. We cannot keep these bees from, you know, coming back. They literally just took the house and bulldozed. How do you know where the queen yeah. is in a six foot hive? Uh, you look for, her, and typically in a in a in a case like this, uh, she's going to be hanging out on the combs where the the brood is, which is the little you know bees being made, you know, not on the honey portion of of the hive. And then she's usually being protected, so you can kind of see the other bees clumping around her and keeping her safe. And you dig through and you find her. Most of the time. It's you're pulling comb out and you're hoping she'll come with. And the minute you pull that comb out, all the bees go right to that comb. So you know that you got the queen. Or if you suck her up in the vacuum, the bees will almost immediately leave the hive and go right to the to where the bee vac is because they smell her sensor and they want to they want to protect. So that's my dude. That sounds just like it's just that sounds totally crazy. That's amazing. I mean, it's a good time of my life. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Did you ever make, did you ever grow honey? I don't know if that's what yeah. you call it. Yeah. I mean, we would, uh, in Florida, because it's so warm here, honey stores for bees uh, isn't as necessary because they're not trying to keep uh, a big store up for the cold months uh, like they do up north. So, you know, we would harvest our honey and, and, you know, you've seen pictures of jars with the comb down in it and all that. We had a heated knife and a centrifuge and all that, you know, pull honey out. And then my wife at the time, my first wife, she ran an organic food co-op. So we would sell the honey, you know, it would, it'd be a part of, you know, people coming by the house to pick up the, the vegetables that she would uh, acquire from the organic farms that were all over town. And then uh, people come get them and they buy, you know, a gallon of honey that was made right outside. And uh, are you familiar with the term lanai? It's kind of like a screen. I know all about a lanai. Oh, okay. I know yeah, love so, a lanai. Right. Well, I love a lanai too. And, and so how I had my hive set up was right on the other side of our lanai screen. So people could come to our house and stand within, you know, 10, 12 inches of these hives and observe. And then I would, you know, pull them apart and everything else, but they were inside of the screen room, so they would be protected from the bees. 
So for my listeners not from Florida, a lanai is like this aluminum extrusion, you know, covered patio. So like when the when and it's like there's screen and stuff like that. But if like a hurricane comes by and it knocks it all down, it, you can put it back up. It's it all the parts yeah. are very uh very easily. It's not an expensive way to build a a, a screened in backyard for the most part is that right typically people have them because they have pools and they they don't want stuff falling in their pool or they don't want bugs getting on them while you know florida's you know heavy in the mosquito zone so uh you know we all have these huge screened in porches and i find it hilarious though i have one behind my house now and i took a couple of photos and sent them out and people in australia are fascinated with lanai's i don't know what it is they're like oh my what is that what is that cage you're inside of you know it it's, it was multiple aussies were just like what the fuck is that thing and i love, I love it i love my lanai so fun. another another thing that you did you you fascinate me you fascinate me by the way oh, you were okay. a captain of a, you were a boat captain yeah what was that like Oh man, uh, I ran fishing charters uh, for, and it must have been like seven or eight years in a in a auto, a little tiny town south of Marco Island, uh, called uh, Goodland, and I would take people fishing for a living. And I would this was my side gig. Like it would I would do it at night and um, like in the after late afternoons on the weekends, and I would just put people on fish, and uh, I went uh, through Coast Guard training got my OUPV6 license, which is uh, basically a captain's license. And, um, and you have to have that to legally take people on a vessel uh, that for hire. Basically. They're paying you to be out. You've had, you've had a lot of, and you, you've, you've got all these weird, you not weird, but like I'm fascinated by all the things that you did. I mean, when you obviously, when you went down to Florida, you went full blast to Florida. There was no bullshitting. You're right. like, I'm, not, I'm going from, you know, Illinois to I'm going to be a charter captain on a boat. Yeah, it took me a bunch of years to come to that conclusion, by the way, like that I wanted to do that. I spent a lot of time out there with my father fishing. Uh, and then uh, it happened. Somebody asked me to take them fishing, and they're like, oh, I'll pay you, you know, whatever. And, and uh like, I don't know what, what, do, what do people charge, you know, to go, go fishing. And it was like $500 for half a day, you know, four hours, you know, to be out on the water. And, um, so I just threw that number out and they're like, sure, no problem. And so you do the math, man, like 500 bucks, 500 bucks, 500 bucks. And you're walking away with a couple grand a weekend to take people and do the, my most favorite fucking thing in the world. And that's to go fishing. Um, I find absolute 100% solace in the hunt. Uh, if you look at my life as a series of events, you'll see they all kind of revolve around the pursuit. It isn't the end goal. It's not the last thing you did. It's the, what the fuck you did to get there. Right. right. And I, I will go back to my rhetoric again about America and you know, well, how I've, see the world but you know our forefathers you know they didn't say you have the right to happiness they didn't say like hey jeff we're gonna create this amazing country and we're gonna we're gonna hand everybody something that makes them immediately happy because we all know that doesn't work but what they did do is they wrote in that you have the right to pursue 
happiness here. And if you think about that as in terms of, uh, you know, where we are as a, as a human race, you know, so many people think, stroke me a check for a million bucks and I'll be happy. And I will argue that that million dollars may actually do more damage to you than good. Uh, if you look at the amount of people who win the lottery uh, and their, their fates, uh, you'll find that most people that win don't do good things with it. In fact, it, it sends them backwards. You know? Right. And our forefathers knew this. I don't know how the fuck they knew this. But what they were saying was is that we're going to build a fertile ground for, uh, for entrepreneurial uh, endeavors, uh, capitalism. We want people to, you know, if you think about this country, by the way, we're a bunch of dissidents. We're a bunch of people who broke free from tyranny and created these, these safe zones for people who wanted to get away from taxation without representation. And then we fought and fucking died for that. And they did that and they started a revolution in them of themselves in a spot where it shouldn't have been possible. And then grew, which in my opinion, I'm very biased, grew up the best and most greatest country in the world. I know we have our flaws. I know we do. But we have created the most fertile ground for commerce and happiness known to man. It's just, it's proven. I agree. I think that... I think that there are certain things that are in the way of people pr pursuing their happiness th that without the fault of their own. But I mm -hmm. think that I completely agree with you. I'm interested, the whole concept of fishing in general have always been, I mean, that's my, I spent years of my life devoted to the concept of fishing for my sculpture because it's this sense of optimism. You know, it's the sense yes. of, you know, there's this, it's a sense of, I don't like to use the word hope, but it's more like potential. There's, there's a lot of potential for excitement and for good things to happen. And that's one of the things that I think that a lot of people don't realize when it comes to fishing and stuff like that. Hunting and fishing is, it's always about your potential and look, we're getting, getting all hidey, hoity toity, but it's very, uh, I'm fascinated by that. I think that there's definitely within the confines of the things that you've done and the things that you're doing, there is definitely the sense of the hunt or the sense of you're looking for that potential. What yes. do you, what do you think? So I'm just wondering what, what's next for you? Because I like, I, I like all these things. I didn't even get into the fact that you went to work for Fox. One of the things I wanted to ask you about was I know one of your podcasts, you were talking about you were, and we're jumping around, we're binging around, we're having a good time. It's fine. Yeah, one of the yeah. things you talked about with Ben was that you were, you were able to fly. You were able to fly in the cockpit of the, of the airplanes whenever you wanted. Yeah. Yeah. Tell I, what was going on there? Well, the reason why I'm in Florida was because I came to work for a guy, a very interesting, very wealthy man from um, Arkansas. Uh, he's passed on now, but uh, he owned an airline uh, down here that was based. Most people hear it on the podcast and sometimes hear it in my YouTube videos. I'm in the direct flight path of the Naples airport. So 
there's planes over my head at any given time. I can hear about a hundred feet. Yeah. And, uh, that I'm, I worked at the Naples airport for this guy as an IT guy. Uh, he had a small cargo airline and what he did for a living, (laughs) this is, this will blow your fucking mind now. So he would buy Airbus A300s and uh, Boeing 727s and he would gut them. So he would take old aircraft, older aircraft, he'd buy them. He would take all the commercial seats out, everything else. And he would put horse stalls in them. What? So if you had a a very famous horse or a horse racing in the Preakness or the Kentucky Derby, wherever it was, and you don't want to drive your horse, you don't want to stress your horse out, you would literally, he would fly a plane to wherever you are and you would load your horse onto this plane and then he would fly it to whatever race, you know that was this horse was going and that to. wouldn't stress out the horses you know i kind of thought that too um the, the horses seem very easy with flight i don't know why i have no idea um i don't know if they drug them or gave them something i, I can't imagine they did though because the, the horses would have to literally race within a couple of days of you know getting to wherever right. going. uh so yeah so uh this is the type of guy by the way who would um you know he would find money in every single venture that he did. So right around this time, this is 2003. We're in the second Afghan, uh, second Iraq conflict now. Right. And Afghan right. And the market starts to take a huge shit. You know, right in 2003, it was like the beginning of it. I'd say like 05, really started to get bad. So people aren't flying horses very much anymore, right? And uh, he decides to approach the government and we start flying uh, parcels in and out of Afghan, uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. So we would, we would fly all like the big, because these planes were gutted, we could fly huge parts, you know, big pallets of stuff, you know, big thing. And, um, and so that's what we were doing. We were flying mail and parcels, parts. Did you, did you ever fly over there? I never did. No, I, and I was too valuable on this end. So where I would fly was to all of our hub, which was, uh, we had one in Ypsilanti, Michigan, which is just outside of Ann Arbor. We had, uh, we'd fly in and out of Atlanta a lot and fly in and out of Lauderdale. And so in order for me to get around, cause I was working on avionics and believe it or not, like a lot of those older planes, they didn't have modern things. You know, there was a lot of like up, you know, things that were older. So that these pilots would have laptops and different things in the cockpits and I would have to go up and fly with them, you know, and man, I had a blast doing it. I mean, an absolute blast of a job. I had a crew tag, which meant, you know, I could flash that and get through TSA in two seconds, even post nine 11, because you had to get some sort of DOD clearance to get right. this crew tag. And then I would just be able to go wherever I wanted. I could jump seat. And anybody that's been in the airline industry knows the term jump seat. And that's that, that fold down seat that you see on any airplane. And at any given time, crew uh, gets on and sits in those seats and then flies around. Now, these planes were empty. So, you know, a lot of them were, they had nothing in them other than cargo and whatever else. So there was nowhere else to sit except for in the cockpit. And I would fly with these guys. And, oh, man, I had... There's nothing like sitting in a cockpit of like an Airbus A300 and just, you feel like you're all, you know, flying even when you're not, you know, cause they're so big. Uh, but, uh, yeah, great time. Good time. Uh, learned only, a lot in that job. Would you only fly with that comp with that company or would you be able to get onto like 
different different airlines. You could. You could get on. Um, you you know, we had a travel person who that was their job. If like I needed to get on an airline, uh, like an American Airlines flight or a United flight, I could get jump seated over. To, uh, it was rare. You and know, what we, were you doing? What was the avionics that you were doing? I was working a lot with uh, flight tracking. So you know, these guys wanted to know at any given time where their planes were. So you know, uh, we used a program called Flight View for that. And then the in the cockpits, the guys all had laptops, and they were all GPS location-based uh, devices. And then that same signal is replicated down to the towers and all the people who are doing flight traffic control, uh, you name it. Most of the time, though, to be honest, I was just, like, fixing, uh, you know, email issues and communication right. problems. It, you know, the, a lot of that flight view stuff, it just works you know, right out of the gate. Uh, but uh, every once in a while, I'd be working on You've led a fascinating life. I'd like to think I got a lot left. I, I think I'm, I'm not just saying, getting I'm started. Not giving, I'm not giving you a deadline. Don't bury though. me yet, Jeff. I'm not, I'm not giving, ready to go. I'm not giving you a deadline. I just, I'm fascinated <laughs> by all these different things between the bees and the grinders and the and the horses and the, and the horse stalls. I, I just, you know. And then, we, and then what were you doing at Fox? I was hired right out of college. I went to NIU in DeKalb, and, um, which is <clears throat> the south side of Chicago, like just out in the cornfields a bit. Um, I studied communications and media production and film, and my minor, believe it or not, was sculpture. I was going sh- to share this with you at some point. Mm. Um, I studied sculpture. I was in the fine arts building more than I was in any other building at school. I really loved working with my hands and creating things, even though I'm not that great at it. Uh, I, and I'm still not, but I love, love, love. That was like where I first got my first introduction using plasma cutters and welders and, you know, anything I had, I could think of they had there. Great, great school, great university. Um, I got a bachelor's of science there. And, um, then I, when I was there, I interned for uh, a TV station affiliate for Fox and then after I did like six months there for free, kind of just like running tapes and just doing like grunt work, getting people coffee, you know, just like whatever shit work that you can right. imagine, you know, anything. Uh, they offered me a position, you know, it was kind of like a long job interview. And I got college credit for my time there. And then, uh, so <laughs> while I was, the, uh, doing that work, uh, somebody in production, cause I wasn't actually hired in production, unfortunately hired in uh, the promotional side and the tech side. So I was working with the photogs and I was working with, um, uh, like the guys who would fix all the stuff. So if I, you know, like anything that broke, you know, we were soldering and fixing, uh, well, I was having a conversation with somebody and they're like, you know, you have a really great voice. Would you mind doing a read? And I, okay, you know, whatever. They put me in a room with a fucking reel-to-reel tape deck that doesn't uh, date me. But uh, so, you know, the old school reel-to-reel, and I operated it myself. So they would put a microphone in front of me, and then I would hit record. And then I would do these reads. And then I just became like the guy doing the reads. It was like almost instantaneously like, oh, okay, Brian's just going to be the guy doing the reads. And that was how I, you know, I've always had kind of like a deep 
uh, voice, uh, a very clear voice somewhat, and they loved it. So I did a lot of narration and uh, anything they needed. I what was the best it. thing? What was the best thing you narrated? Okay, this stands out by far. The, okay, so in my hometown, we had this uh, racetrack, and it was called the Rockford Speedway, right? So, and it's just like you imagine. It's just a, a shithole speedway. They've got the demolition derby. They've got, you know, the school bus races, you know, just like anything. And, you know, uh, it was like where the townspeople would go to have a good time. You know, right. you grab a can of Pabst Blue Ribbon beer, you hang out, you get smashed, you watch all the, you know, the shit go down on the racetrack. And um, you, in fact, this is a fucking great segue, by the way. You were talking about Mystery Science Theater 3000. And I think with Will Filter. I can't right. remember who you were talking about. Right. So, uh, <laughs> and I, there was this great uh, scene where they're watching a movie about race cars. And they did this. Uh, they, <laughs> the little robot guys are like, they said something like, hot merging action. Right? So not only did they let me do the reads, sometimes they would let me write these commercials. So I now can basically write my own shit. Holy I started cow. writing, I started writing these phrases into these commercials and, uh, I used hot merging action. And then of course the standard, uh, $20 gets you the whole seat, but you're only going to need the edge. Fuck. That was fucking good. Give me, do you remember any of the commercial reads you used to do? Could you do one off the top of your head? Man, now nah, you know I I Fuck. don't remember any of them. It's, it it was so long ago. Where did but you the, get this the, voice? Where was it like you know cocaine and wet whiskey? What what? How did this come out of nowhere? <laughs> uh, no, it's it. I've always had a when when my balls dropped. I don't know what happened. They went extra low. I'm I'm pretty sure that's what happened. Um, my dad and my uncles, everybody's got this voice, man. Like um, I had an uncle. He's passed on now. But you know who Sam Elliott is? The sure, actor Sam Elliott. Course. Okay. He is the real life Sam Elliott, my uncle Leo. And oh God, he was, he, his voice, just like mine, just booming, thin guy, just, you know, not a, not a heavy set dude at all, but just booming voice. And, and we've been blessed with it. My dad's the same way. He's, he's, a, he's now he's in his mid seventies. So he's real, real raspy, but he's still got it. All right, sure. so here's the real question. Obviously, you were a natural talent for doing these reads. How come you didn't just keep doing the reads? I would think that the voiceover work is like, because this one, when I first heard about you, and I was talking to Craig Lockwood, Lockwood said that you used to do voiceover work. And I was just yep. like, why would I, I would, I'd be like, let me show up. Be like, you know, like uh, those old, you ever see those old, those old Orson Welles, <laughs> you know yeah. what I'm talking about? Orson yeah. Welles, to a lot of you listeners, are, he's dead, but he was one of the great actors of our time, uh, yeah. Citizen Kane, but Visionary. he was known for doing voiceover work, and part of it was he was drunk. So he was doing these voiceover works, and he was coming in yelling at the director, and he was he refused the direction, but he was doing all this classic voiceover work. And if you can hear the videos, the the YouTube videos that you could probably find of Orson Welles, you know, outtakes are hilarious. Yes. But all I can think of is is like that seems like it's like a good day's work. Like go in there, yeah, do your reads, fuck away off. You know, I, up until a few years ago, I was doing, um, I was reading books for audible. 
So uh, on my nights, my side hustle was nights and weekends, I would read books for Audible. So I got hired by ACX and authors would approach me and I would just read, you know, do whatever. Oh my God. Uh, believe it or not, though, there's not that much money in it. Um, if, if I read, say, I don't know, four hour long book, I think it's like three, 300 to 500 bucks is all you make doing hmm. it. And you have to edit yourself. And oh. You have to do the reads. And yeah. So it's, it's, that not, sounds like it's, a lot of work. It's a ton of work. Yeah. It's a ton of work. You get really good at it. I mean, you, I got really, I probably narrated close to 30 books. Really? Probably. Yeah. Any yeah. ones we would know? No, all shit, all garb. Oh. And, you know, and what it was is I'm reading these books and some of them don't make any fucking sense. Like these people write these books. None of it, none of it made sense. Um, a lot of financial books, Forex trading, stock trading, stuff like that. I got plugged into a whole financial sector where these guys were hiring me to read books about hedge funds and bullshit. None of it made any sense to me. And uh, I just hated it. And, and then, I mean, I hate it. That's the terriblest thing to say. I, I, I would say... You were sick of it. I was sick of it. And right. then that's when I got really serious about doing YouTube and starting, you know, true content creation and true... Um, I, I basically unlocked my life to the public sphere. Huh. I decided that I, I... You remember, you saw Private Parts, right? With Howard oh, Stern? kidding me? Fucking kidding me? Right. You kidding so, me? Are you crazy? You remember when he... When he has, has the, uh, the um, epiphany and he's like, you know what? I think I just need to start, st I need to stop filtering myself. Right. And, and he's talking to uh, his first wife and he was just saying like, you know, I think this is the thing is that I'm just too guarded. I need to stop like, you know, and then the next scene is him doing kill, kill, kill. Yeah. The white man, you know? And, and it was like, the, it was, a, you watch him do it and you think no one else can do that. Right. Well, bull fucking shit. You can't. Why not? You know, who the, I always say this. Who the fuck am I? I know my kids listen to the podcast, by the way. And Dexter's giggling about the whole jerk off thing and whatever else I was talking about. I don't care. I think it's funny. I think it's funny that my kids see their dad as a real human being. I think it's like really super important that they know that like their dad was a kid, too, at one time. Did stupid shit, whatever else. It humanizes me to them i'm not just dad you hmm. know? i'm brian i'm some sometimes they call me brian oh, that, that but, you gotta stop that that's no good that's <laughs> you can't you can't let that's right. no good you know what's interesting i mean i'm like i mean i'm a howard stern fan i listened to him this morning he was he's just outstanding even to this day he was uh he's just so great I started to, a knife talk, we started to, I started to, I was looking for a new bit to do and we were, were talking, I had heard, like, you know, somebody wrote a question in and I was reading it, it was, if you could do whatever you wanted, what would it be? And I was thinking about, like, radio, I love radio, I mean, I feel like Howard Stern, Don Imus, and then sports radio raised me as a child because I had, you know, I was a latchkey kid, blah, blah, blah. And I heard this expression, this radio expression called a hot take. And I said, ah, maybe we'll do, maybe we'll do something about a hot take. And I started to look into what a hot take is. I started to read it and it's actual, it's not just like a, you know, cool expression. It's a real expression that, um, was used in radio and journalism. And it's basically ways and it started in radio. It's ways in which to get your audience, you know, into what you're doing. You know, it's, it's actually, it's, it's 
it's how to be a little bit controversial to get people talking, good or bad. So a hot take is basically just a very, um, you know, uninformed opinion that you just are very, you know, you're very mm. uh, passionate about. So it just, it was, so I was looking, I was like, oh, shit, I didn't really even realize that this was like a, uh, I mean, this is, you know, all the guys on all the opinion, you know, the, you know, opinion journalists, they're all doing hot takes. You know, Howard Stern all did hot takes. It was a way in which to engage the audience in a, almost a controversial way. And it really kind of made me sit back when I'm just thinking about how our society is now with, with politicians and how politicians are and how we're, you know, it, it's like we're all living in this strange, everything's a hot take. That's the only thing that people are interested in. But, I mean, getting back to, you know, Howard Stern and, and you know, and that, I found it, I find it to be, I find that, unguardedness and especially with you and your podcast i really enjoy your i don't listen to a lot of podcasts i don't listen to a lot of maker podcasts because i'm afraid of getting uh influenced but i do listen to yours and i do like how unguarded you and ben are there's no reason to cover up i mean I'm, of course professionally people have to reserve themselves to certain things but once you're like for a real like when you're a real self-made person you have to kind of decide, like, if somebody's going to buy something from me, are they going to like it, whether or not I'm, you know, kind of a sick, funny individual or not? Like, for instance, um, I have a, a big following of people who live in Texas, and they're very religious, and they, you know, they, um, some of them are pastors of churches, and they're they're actually people I truly respect and really love and everything. And, you know, they hear me have a conversation with God and God's telling me to shut the fuck up and whatever else. And it's kind of funny or whatever. And I think to myself, like, oh, man, they're going to hear this. And, you know, some people may take that in the wrong way. But what I've learned is that that's my brand of humor. And I think they find it funny, too. And they and some of them have told me this directly that. They like my approach because a lot of times with religion and I'm not a religious person, but with religion, it's too stuffy and it's too, you know, you know, people don't see God in this way, you know, like this booming, thundering guy who, you know, being an asshole and kind of funny or whatever, it, it just takes it down a peg and makes us all feel a little bit more like we're on the same plane, you know, that's, and I, you know, me personally, I think about that. I go, well, fuck. you know, I'm, I use the F word a lot. My mom hears this. My kids hear this. And my mom's super religious and she never, you know, she never swears. And she, she hates that I do it. I, it's not who I am. I mean, right. I cannot keep that side of me back. Uh, it, I, w I feel like I'm doing my children an injustice by showing them one version of myself that isn't the true version of right. who I am. Uh, look, just, you're having a you know, good time. Fuck? You're having a good time. P.S. That was uh, he did a uh, uh, Brian and Ben did a uh, Brian did a piece on his podcast uh, work for it where he, he did a he did the bet. Well, I said it's the best bit on the Makery channel. He did a bit where he was talking to God and he, he it was well written. It was well acted. It was very clear that you have uh, you have quite a style. And it was I hope there's going to be more of that. I'm going to make more of them. Yeah. I was sick, so I couldn't do anything else. And I was like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to write this like funny bit, you know, and I just did it. And you have no idea how many people private message me and, and talk to me about that. And it opened a lot of doors. I think even just people 
I don't know what it is, but when you show a side of yourself like that and you talk about certain things like that that are revealing or whatever, uh, it brings people to some, the right people closer to you. Well, so it was, Craig messaged me as soon as he heard it, and he says, go listen to Brian's podcast right now. He, he, he was very, I mean, he thought it was, he said it was the best things. He, he, he said I was, he, he was laughing like crazy, and I was too. So, guys, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to go listen to the Work For It podcast. I want you to go follow workforit.podcast on Instagram. I want you to go follow Brian, house underscore work. I want you to go buy something from him at housemade.us and you have an open invite anytime you want to come on here, Brian. This was a blast, Jeff. Thank you. And by the way, I just, I'm going to stroke your balls for a second. Well, I mean, you don't have to say it real like that. quick. I, mean, I know you, I know it makes you feel a little just, weird, but you know, just, right, just right, loosen right, up, relax. All right, all right. All right. All right. I want to tell you something. Okay. And, it, and this is, this is, uh, this is kind of like something that I've always wanted to tell you. So this is like perfect time. You have inspired me just like you tell me that I inspired, but you really have inspired me to do and, and be better, a better version of myself. Every single time I hear something that you're up to or working on, I immediately go to find out more about it. Uh, and I want to learn about the things that you're doing because like you, I feel like you're totally open. Like you, you just show who you are. You know, you let it loot. And I love that about you. And I think the, the majority of the people that listen do too. And I feel like, man, you're such an important member of this community. And I just, I wish you the best in everything ever that you take on. I, I want you to know that you're like one of the people I, I don't, you're in my sphere. Like I know you kind of, you know, like we know each other. We talk on the phone sometimes. But I feel like, you're like a kindred spirit to me and I'm, and it's ha I'm glad to know you and I well, appreciate it. Thank you. That was a very kind thing to say. And I certainly appreciate your sentiment. You're too kind. Uh, uh, My job is not to inspire people, but that's a different story. Guys. I don't know. It's a side, it's a side effect. It's it a, is a side indirect. Effect. You're doing it. It's indirect. It's not, <laughs> trust me, it is not, it is not part of my bag. I'm not, I mean, I'm just trying to like, you know, Do I'm trying to tell dick jokes, but it never seems to happen on this goddamn podcast. I get all the dick jokes. Slide into Jeff's DMs. Do not slide into Jeff's DMs. Leave me alone. How much? Please. He no, has inspired. No, do not do not tell me any of that. I'm See, not motherfucker, interested. this is how it works, by the way. No, 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 you, no, no. I'm you, out. I don't, you, I don't, I don't follow that. Uh, don't slide into my it. DMs. Everyone, just leave me alone, please. I'm begging you. <laughs> so, guys, I got a message from Pat Quinn over at the Center for Metal Arts. I actually got, he sent me a beautiful hammer PS. Uh, I paid for, by the way. And I got the catalog for the Center for Metal Arts, and he's got some classes open. The there's a there's a uh, Anna uh, Koplik is doing a class uh, that's going to be kitchen utensils uh, utensils. Jesse Jesse and Carrie Savage has got a class. They're going to do some bottle openers. That's open, and then Erica Moody, excellent excellent blacksmith, is going to be teaching uh, kitchen wear. And then um, there's fearless forge welding with Addison D Liz Lizley. Go check them out over the Center for Metal Arts. There are places, there are classes There's definitely worth going. People ask me how you can become a better blacksmith. Go down the Center for Metal Arts. They have housing available. You get the you get the special experience. So go down there. They got classes available. They have other things. 
some of them are sold out. Like my future guest, Salem Straub, is going to be coming in in the next couple of weeks. His class is sold out. You know why? He's hot shit. So that's the way it is. Um, go check out the Center for Metal Arts. Go support those guys. And uh, P.S., go support, of course, go support Brian and everything he's doing. And the other, the other podcasts on the Makery Network. And... Just remember this, guys. Next week I have Owner Caglar, Honor Caglar, dies in every film is gonna come in here. We're gonna we're gonna fool around. That's an interesting guy. Very, very funny guy. I I, I enjoy his antics, and we're gonna hopefully gonna fool around with him. And then uh, we got some other things coming down the line, and I appreciate you guys listening and supporting and go buy some more axe wax. I need to sell some more axe wax. Go sell some more axe wax, axewax.us, put in promo code full blast 10. 10% off. And with that said, if it's Friday, we'll be up. So we'll see you later, guys. And um, thanks again. Brian, thanks again. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate you, buddy. Hey, I have a word for you. Our expression. This is one's for you, babe. I'm with you. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network.